Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We're trying to understand why Governor Mike DeWine has moved from his twice-a-week briefings to a 5.30 in the evening speech to Ohio and how that's really different from what he's been doing. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski and Laura Johnston. Hello. Hello. Good morning. We've got lots to talk about today, so let's get right to it. We've talked about the kinds of coronavirus hotline complaints Cuyahoga County is getting, but what kind of complaints have they received at the Cleveland Health Department? Laura Johnston, this is an interesting difference. The As we discussed yesterday, the county is getting a million mask complaints from pretty much every retail establishment open in Cuyahoga County. The Cleveland Health Department, we we looked at everything they've gotten since I think it was March, and it's a deeper level of concern that we're seeing from Cleveland residents. What did we see? Yeah, there are some similarities, but there are fewer complaints um, overall. Obviously, this is a smaller area. We're talking about just the city of Cleveland. The city racked up 1,834 complaints And that included 2,464 allegations between March 20th and Sunday. And most of them were about people congregating in large crowds. And then that was about 940. And the other 306, which was the second most, was for lack of social distancing. So the city health department follows up with the businesses tries to give them guidance for complying with the state and city guidelines. And Cleveland police can respond to calls about mass gatherings. We have had several stories about them breaking up parties. What's funny is that town hall was the number one complaint in the city. And it was also the number one complaint in the county over the weekend. That's the restaurant in Ohio City. Yeah, that that place just keeps coming up. And you got to think that they may be facing some sort of shutdown if they don't get their act together. What what impressed me? Look, we know that the mass gatherings are a really serious danger zone. When you get a bunch of people from far and wide together in, in a backyard, in a building, wherever, that there's a real chance the coronavirus spread. So it's impressive to me that the residents of Cleveland have picked that. That's the number one complaint. I mean, 9,400 of, of 2,500, that's more than a third. Uh, that, that's good. I, it'll be, it would be interesting to see how many of those mass gatherings were broken up by the calls, how many they could get to, as we all know, the take staff and then people to go to those. And police have a lot of things to do. So running off to mass gatherings is not their, their top priority when people are getting shot. But it's interesting. Just one little clarification. The, the 1,800 complaints, the 2,500 allegations, I, I'm interpreting that. I hope I'm right, that some people called and said there's a mass gathering across the street and Mary Smith and Walmart's not wearing a mask. So they Yeah, do. that's my my understanding, too. Or maybe they were, you know, they're, they're mass gathering and they're not social distancing. So that counts as two, because otherwise I don't know how you get those numbers. Yeah, I mean, in the county, it's just it's it, well, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of. I'm I'm in a store and somebody's not wearing a mask, which 
is kind of useless, right? Because by the time, even if the health department could dispatch somebody immediately, which they can't, the person's going to be gone and you don't know who it is. So what's the point? I mean, what right. can you really do unless you start to get like town hall, lots of complaints about one place, which that's not what we saw. We published that list today. Some people were unhappy about that. They think that we're creating discord by, by running it, but you know, it's news. I mean, we're, we're, our editorial board has said, we don't like the, the snitch line the county has created. It's a spite and malice line. It's a place where discord will come and we think we ought to be reducing discord, but the county has created this list. We're going to publish it. And there is not a pattern. It's everywhere. Every store, there's no way the county can deal with that. I mean, there's no strategy you can employ of enforcement based on that. Does anybody disagree? Chris Warnowski, do you think I'm, I'm wrong here? No, but, you know, I think when you when you have a, a hotline, you're right. It does become kind of a, you know, do people have a personal beef against a specific business? And and the fact that you're not seeing a lot of regularity in consistency in where these things are happening, you know, it's not one specific sector. It's not, you know, it's not one specific geographic reason, region. It's just, you know, it's scattershot. And, and then what do you do with that information? You know, like, what are they, I mean, really, honestly, what are they doing? Have they find a single person? Have they find a business yet? I, you know, I know during the thick of it, you know, when we were on, lockdown with essential businesses, they did a handful, but, you know, through this process, have they done, have they done anything? Well, and, you know, there has been an argument that by publicizing the names of businesses where it's happening, you put some pressure on them, but this was so global. I don't, I don't know that that's actually effective here. I, I mean, if you look at that list, I think it took up a full page in the plain dealer today. I just don't know that any store that's listed on there is going to feel shame. And really, is that what we should be doing? Should we be shaming stores that have the occasional customer that doesn't wear a mask? Or should we be, we talked about this yesterday, thinking much more strategically, what can we do as a community to increase mask wearing? Somebody at the CDC uh, came out yesterday and said, if we could get mask wearing going in this country for two months, we would pretty much stop the coronavirus in its tracks. You know, is that the messaging we should be doing that let's stop this? Let's have a winter. Let's have a Christmas. Let's stop this in the next two months rather than, hey, here's a number. If you see somebody not wearing a mask, call up, let us know. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think the Cuyahoga County Health Department, by getting the calls about the mass gatherings, that's a that's an issue. That's that's where it spreads. We've all. We've you know, that was at the bar in Saline, Michigan this week where everybody who went got it. That's the much more serious problem, especially when people gather and not wear masks. So interesting comparison between the way the city and the county is doing it. Uh, I think the city uh, has got a better solution than what the county's got going. It's this week in the CLE. Will we ever know the reason a lying <laughs> Cleveland police officer whose mistruths falsely imprisoned a man for eight months? was not fired. Chris Warnowski, yesterday we talked about the Cleveland Police Monitor's overall report on discipline, uh, which he said was way too lax under the the hands of of former uh, public safety director Michael McGrath. But this report really focused about a third or more than a third of its attention on this single case 
of the false imprisonment. Could you could you walk us through what the case involved and why we don't know that or, or what the reasons are if we know them for why the officer is still an officer? So, right. So this case is something that we had actually written about um, before we got the report. We there there was a lawsuit involved with this case and. And it was kind of a surprise when we got this report, we went through it, you know, it's like a hundred page report and they dealt with this, this individual case in its own addendum to the bigger report. And it was about 30 pages out of the 100 pages that we got. And it involves an officer by the name of uh, Stephen Fedorko, who was involved with an incident with a guy who ended up in jail for several months um, due to the fact that Fedorko and, and three other officers were dishonest about what happened uh, when they responded to a call from this guy's mother who, you know, the police showed up, this kid, this guy r- runs into a, a closet. They try to drag him out. And, and in the process of this, something gets e- either thrown or, or something falls. I think it was a mirror and Fedorko's toe gets broken. And, and so they use this, you know, they all sort of, it, it appears they all sort of coordinated a story that the, the guy that they were responding to, who was having the, what appears to be a mental health crisis, uh, they, they, they all claimed that he broke the officer's toe when it appears the officer may have broken his own toe when he was throwing stuff around. <laughs> and, and so all of that becomes the basis of this guy staying in jail for eight months and, being charged with some serious crimes. And then it comes out during the internal investigation that the officers lied. And the way that, that severe. And, and all charges were dropped, right? I mean, he never. Right. Was yeah. yeah. He never. He, yeah. It was all dropped. There was a settlement and a lawsuit. I think the city paid this guy like $175,000 for, for what happened in a settlement. And, and so the, the way that the, the, discipline structure is set up is that that certain discipline that reaches uh, beyond this threshold involves a recommendation from a police chief to the public safety director. And the police chief recommended that this officer be fired. And, and it turns out that uh, Mike McGrath ended up only giving him a, a, a suspension. So they suspended the officer and they never really explained why. And, and that was one of the overriding criticisms of the, of the monitor of this process in general was that a lot of times when there was a, like a, an extreme deviation from what was recommended as punishment, you know, that more often than not, McGrath would apply the least amount of, of punishment and not really give any justification for why. And in this case alone, you know, encouraged the mayor, like somebody brought this to the mayor's attention. I think it was the monitor and and the mayor basically said, "Okay, we're not going to be cutting deals with officers before they have these hearings anymore. So, well, this this officer went on some months later and killed somebody. Right. Right. And and, yeah. And I mean, if they would have fired him like the chief wanted, somebody who's dead might very well be alive today. Right. And, and again, there's no telling what would have happened if, you know, a lot of times these, these punishments do get sort of lessened through the arbitration process that is required 
under their the union contract with the city, um, a lot of times those those punishments sort of get get weakened by the arbitrator. And and so, you know, I mean, this guy could have gotten his job back or whatever. Right? All right. But, but, but here's the other problem. Stance. But here's the other problem. He's a liar. So if I get charged by this guy, if I ever got arrested by this guy and fought it, I, I would think that I could convince the jury you cannot believe a word he said. He lied to keep a man falsely imprisoned for eight months. He's not a credible police officer. So yeah. how does he, how, you know, how can he do his job when he has zero credibility? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, that would be it's something that it would be nice to talk to the police chief or McGrath about. But, you know, I, it it's you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, if if somebody whose job it is to, you know, who at least part of their job is to arrest people and and testify to go, and go into court and testify about it. If that, if a, if a defense attorney can, can impeach you basically with that information at the get go, um, you know, that, that's, you know, that makes it difficult to prosecute crimes. So you have to think that the prosecutor's office is not happy about this either because, you know, it makes doing their jobs more difficult. You know, I keep getting emails from people that are accusing us of being anti-police. I got one from some guy at the IAC Center the other day. And they just are, you know, cops are good. You keep saying they're bad. You, you, you're you anti-police. And I'm like, we're not anti-police. We're we're talking about police officers who've done some really bad things that only by the grace of God does the truth come out. I mean, there's a, every chance in the world that that guy who was in prison or in jail for eight months could have been falsely convicted and locked away for five years. I mean, it's this right. is one time where where the truth comes out, and it, it's it's fascinating how there is a segment of the population that refuses to look at the videos that Corey Shapers put up of of what happened at the at the riot on May 30th, where police attacked people wantonly for no reason, and stories like this. This is wrong. This has to be fixed. And unless we analyze it, it won't be fixed. And so I don't I don't get the emails I've been getting. Anyway, it's it, I, let me just say this. I mean, it's as somebody who's been doing this a long time. And, and I think you might be able to echo this sentiment, too. It's you hear this so much. You know, we're in the position where we have to pay attention to it. You know, the general public really doesn't sometimes. Um but but when you when you do this for a long enough time and you see it over and over and over again repeated in city after city and police department after police department just by sheer volume it becomes really difficult to deny at the bare minimum that we need to have a conversation about how we police our communities now <laughs> i you know i i think what 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 is heartening is right now we're having more the more most serious amount of conversations about this issue than I think we've ever had in my lifetime. And, and I'm seeing people who are really paying attention to this issue and, and learning about it and, and, and trying to be smart and, and thoughtful and respectful about it as we but, debate the future of it. And, and so, but, but more and more, now. but more and more the people who are looking at this are coming to the conclusion that you can't fix what's there, that, that the attitude of police officers to the community that this has been so long standing that you're seeing more and more people say we need to change how we do all the things police do and get rid of the traditional police department. That's what defunding the police is about so that you get away from 
this this attitude. I saw, you know, it's the great comparison. They think of themselves as warriors when they should be thinking of themselves as guardians. And mm. we've lost that. And so, uh, you know, the county council is considering providing the money to to train every cop in Cayuga County in some of these fundamentals. But the real question that keeps arising is, can you change that attitude? When Cleveland police officers are walking three abreast into a convenience store, not wearing a mask, that kind of tells you everything about what they think of the community around them. They don't even have the respect for the community to contain the coronavirus. These are the examples to the community and they're not wearing masks. So we got to move on, but, but this is a serious moment uh, as America moves forward and how it polices itself. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the difference between the red and purple levels of Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's coronavirus alert ratings? Laura Johnson, we can quickly get to the short answer to this. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> but but, but it, it gets into the whole idea of what is Governor Mike DeWine trying to do to curb the coronavirus? Yesterday, he canceled his briefing. It was going to be the first one after the biggest number we had of cases on Friday and then announced a a five o'clock, 530 briefing today where I guess reporters won't get to ask questions, which is probably what he's doing. Anyway, what is the difference between purple and red in a couple of words? Because that's all we know. Um, recommended like risk level. I mean, there there is no real difference. And this is not just journalists talking among themselves. I can't tell you how many people have asked me thinking that I might be able to explain it to them. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm as lost as everybody else. The idea is that red is level three. People are encouraged to consider necessary travel and limit gatherings of any number. And then under purple, which is level four, people are advised to limit themselves to, quote, necessary travel and leave home only for supplies and services. Nothing is mandatory. We asked the question, Jeremy Peltzer, our reporter, asked Dan Tierney, DeWine spokesman, what they should do. And he kind of... I mean, dithered and said, oh, it's up for Ohioans to use their own judgment. And that's a nice thing to say. But if you don't give them anything to base that judgment on, how is this any different? I know it's it, look, this is just kind of dumb. I mean, it's the idea, you know, in red, you should consider whether you do travel in purple. You should really consider. Whether you do. <laughs> and, 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 the, and I think part of the problem comes down to this isn't rocket science. There's only a couple of things you should be doing. You should be wearing masks. You should be social distancing. You shouldn't be going in gatherings. And it's it's not all that difficult to stop the virus and having four re- four threat levels makes it difficult because there's not four different sets of things you should do. Uh, I guess the argument is if you know you're purple, if you know your county's now the worst, maybe you'll take it more seriously. But I did think Dan Tierney, I mean, man, he stumbled around those questions for Jeremy, yeah. trying to make it sound like it made sense. And Jeremy talked to an expert who basically said, yeah, it, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, you, you have to wonder by creating this purple, I mean, it, was it just a scare tactic? Like, you don't want to get to the purple. You don't know what the what will happen under purple. And then not having anything to back it up. We'll have to see what DeWine announces today. I know I've heard a lot of speculation that we might be shut down all over again, like California or something like that. I, I, but we I, haven't I, gotten I, any indication no, of that. I, I cannot believe he's going to shut down the whole state because he doesn't I, need to. 
I, I think he needs to talk some more about schools. It's fascinating, yes. Lars, since you and I started debating this a couple of weeks ago. How much public opinion has moved to my side? Oh, my, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, like it is. I started People, seeing this backlash and they're, you know, they're teachers asking the question, what happens when the first teacher gets sick? And that's not something that's in any plan that I've seen. I mean, do you quarantine an entire class and say, now you have to stay home? I mean, and how do you teach a kindergartner? I mean, kindergarten teachers literally tie the kids shoes. They cannot do that from six feet apart. And so, I, it's, so there's so many questions. So he might. He might address schools because that's becoming a much. I mean, districts that it said they would open are now backing off. The Pediatric Association, which said they should go back to school, has backed off. And a poll that came out this morning shows it's now three quarters of Americans say, are you nuts? Don't open the schools, which I just want to point out. That's where I was two weeks ago. But, and but I think so, it would be very different if we were on the downward trend and we felt like we had it in control. Right now, that is not the case. Yeah, but you know what's sad is if we would have recognized early on, you know, look, we can't open the schools. We don't know what's ahead. We don't have a vaccine. And we had taken all of our resources and said, what is the most effective way to teach kids who are home? And make sure parents have the tools they need to work and be. If we would have invested a great deal of communal thought in that, we might have come up with some ideas. But because of the fractured messaging coming from the White House and the different governors, and because of this idea that they should go back, they shouldn't go back, we haven't had that conversation. Each district has been left to do it. They all have different levels of resource. So it's a colossal mess, as has pretty much everything been about this virus. So that's one place he could go. He right. could close the bars. I mean, the bars yes. have proven to be a significant problem. Not all of them, but when you hear about the gatherings where, where danger is happening, it's bars. So, Or you could set hours for them. I can't imagine he's going to close down workplaces that have reopened because the employers have largely gotten this correct. You're not hearing about the spread from barbershops and tattoo parlors. Those people are doing what they need. So I, I'd be shocked if he went back to a shutdown. He could do the quarantine thing where if you leave the state, he asks you to self-quarantine. Although we're not seeing- We're the problem now. So. <laughs> but, but you're not seeing that as a source of spread. I mean, right. you know, the one thing I give DeWine credit for is he's tried to focus on the actual problem. And I, I've been a little bit surprised at the complete shutdowns that are happening because that seems a little bit over the top. And it's not a complete shutdown because you go to the grocery store, you go to the pharmacy, you still go to the doctor. So it'll, mm -hmm. it'll be interesting. I do think it makes no sense. I, you know, to have a special 5.30 speech to Ohio on the Ohio channel. Well, he does a yep. speech to Ohio twice a week on this, the Ohio channel. The only so difference is that that reporter Jack from Mansfield <laughs> won't get up to, to make his silly speech before he asks a question. I, you know, I also think it's perilous if DeWine has decided he's going to stop facing questions. What if this is what he does from now on? Every Wednesday, oh, well, he addresses the state and he doesn't answer questions. That That's would be a... That would be a big problem. And it's funny because it's become so ingrained in all of us, like 2 p.m., right? Because I said to my kids, my mom's picking them up today, and I said, well, I can't come get you tonight because DeWine's talking at 5.30. And my seven-year-old was like, why is he talking at 5.30? He talks at 2. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, it, it, look, it makes no sense. It's It's strange. But what is the real difference between that and, and what he's been doing? 
the reporters won't get to ask questions. And I, if he makes that the new standard because he doesn't like some of the questions he's getting, that's bad because his office has not been all that accessible. I, I, I think it's because they're overwhelmed by questions and they can only get to so many. But at least twice a week now, it used to be seven days a week, people get to ask him questions to elicit answers. So we'll see. At 5.30 tonight, we'll have an answer about what what's on his plate. But my bet is he's not going to have a briefing tomorrow. Why would he have a briefing tomorrow at 2 when he talks tonight at 5.30? I hope he does. It's this week in the CLE. Why should Ohioans be careful about driving into New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut in this era of the coronavirus? You know, Chris Wernowski, in the beginning of the coronavirus, we had all sorts of states saying, if you come into our state, you have to quarantine for two weeks. That all went away, especially as summer vacation season came. But now there's a bunch of states looking at their their border states and saying, whoa, you guys are out of control. So what's going on here? (laughs) Yeah, so Ohio has the distinction of being among the Uh, 22 states that will now be required to have travelers quarantine upon arrival in New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut. And basically they have imposed, New York will have like fines if you get caught uh, abandoned or, you know, avoiding the the rules when you get there. So Cuomo announced yesterday that, you know, their, their biggest success has essentially been a, almost a near complete shutdown and that's what helped them sort of, of get to where they're at and and now you know we're the contagion i guess so you know <laughs> if, if anybody's heading heading east you're going to have to hunker down for a couple of weeks and if uh, if you get caught uh, you're, you're you face a fine of like 2000 i think it's like $2000 and can be brought into uh, in for a hearing in order to complete mandatory quarantine here's the thing practically speaking how is that enforceable? Here's the here's what's going to happen. The people who are responsible, the people who wear masks and socially distance and probably don't have coronavirus, they'll do it. The people who don't wear masks and I think, you know, this is a hoax or or whatever, they're not going to do it. So what's the point? How do you catch them? You, you know, you're not. Are you taking license plates as they cross the border well, and then figuring is- out where they are? This is Laura Johnston. They actually have people at the airports, which I guess works for some places like Arizona. But yeah, who's flying from, unless you're going to New York City, not a lot of people flying from Ohio. And I mean, if you think about it, Buffalo is not very far, like, you know, Western New York, Chautauqua, a lot of Clevelanders go to Chautauqua in the Mm -hmm. summer. Um, It's going to be really interesting to see what those places look like. We had some family that visited from New York State over the weekend, and I'm like, they got in just in the nick of time because this isn't just us going there, right? They can't come here unless they're ready to quarantine for two weeks when they get back. Right. Right. It's when they return. And look, we had that. You couldn't leave the state and come back without quarantining until, but he lifted it as the vacation season began. Um, But again, is the, the the question I have is, is that a practical way of stopping the virus? Is there evidence of people coming from other states and creating pockets of coronavirus? I have not heard that there is. So it seems like a solution in search of a problem. And what I've appreciated about Mike DeWine is he's not done that, that he's trying to focus his solutions on where the problems are. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he reinstitutes that uh that requirement in Ohio like you had early on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
What's the thought behind creating Dr. Amy Acton Day in Ohio? Laura Johnston, I'm hoping that today's 530 briefing by Mike DeWine <laughs> is an announcement that he's returning Amy Acton to the fore and we will start hearing from her every day because I think we were better informed when we were getting to hear from Amy Acton every day. There are some people, of course, didn't like Amy Acton, thought she was overzealous in the way she was trying to protect Ohioans. I am not among them. I miss Dr. Amy Acton. What's the thought here of honoring her with a day yeah, and, why, so, and why that day? So the, there's a couple of uh, Democrats in the um, state house, the house of um, representative that want to honor her for her work in the early days of the pandemic. And so they chose the date of February 26th because that was when she was hi- um, hired by governor Mike DeWine as the Ohio department of health director in 2019. So she really only served a little over a year in this position. Um, while this might go over in the House, it is so not going to go over in the Ohio Senate because I think they've done like the exact opposite in, in terms of Amy Acton. Although, I don't know. You don't think that they would at least salute how hard she worked for Ohioans. And she put up with a lot of very ugly treatment that usually government workers don't have to. Elected leaders do. But I mean, she had people protesting outside her house. Uh, you know, I mean, I... She also became a symbol, right? A, mm-hmm. a woman of science in a key position. And we had the stories that there were young girls that were thinking of her as a superhero and wanted right. to emulate her. It was terrific. You don't think the Senate could look past some of the petty nonsense and, and at least acknowledge, yes, she's, she's a good person who did a good thing? You have more faith than I do right now, which is, I feel like, not usually the case between the two of us. But I agree that the public <laughs> public sentiment... Wow, that's a shot. No, I mean, like, I'm usually the one that believes that, I don't know, you, you, you can be more skeptical than me, and you've been proven right in a number of times. But um, I just, I, I do think the public sentiment on this side is for Amy Acton. We get a lot of messages from people saying, God bless Amy Acton. They miss Amy Acton. I mean, people like her and she, she got a lot of write-ups, you know, across the country for her leadership. So if you put this to a popular vote, I, I feel like Ohioans for the most part would, would support her. Um, the Smith, uh, Kent Smith of Euclid, one of the um, sponsors said that, at, you know, on April 9th, we had less than a third of the number of COVID-19 cases in three comparably sized neighboring states. And that was one of the reasons that he wants to salute her. Um, I, I think we'd all wish we could go back to that point that we had fewer cases than all our neighbors. I, I, I think it would be hard to to say that Amy Acton didn't have her heart in the right place and wasn't trying to serve Ohioans with everything she had. Um, and that's I think that's what the effort to honor her is about. Whether you disagree with every tactic that she pursued, she she was on the stage for a very short period of time and made a big difference. So it would be nice if they, they did something to honor her this week in the CLE. All right. That was uh, that was another set of interesting discussions. A lot of fire here. This is a fun, fun way to start the day every day. I appreciate Chris and Laura for for joining. Thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE. Chris is off the next couple of days. We'll have Layla Tassian tomorrow morning to talk about her intriguing look at housing court and evictions. And on Friday, we're going to have a special conversation with our Indians writer, Paul Hoynes, and sports manager, Dave Campbell, about what to expect from this season. 
This Week in the CLE will return tomorrow.